Let's pray together as we stand. Almighty Father, uh, as we come now to your word and as we consider uh, a moment in the life of Jesus and in the story of the church that is among the darkest moments, the moment of Jesus' betrayal, we ask that you will show us Jesus very, very clearly that you will uh, overcome whatever needs to be overcome in us, any obstacle that stands before us, uh, seeing Jesus clearly? And will you do a deep work in us that we may come out uh, trusting Christ uh, deeply, wisely, truly? In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And it be helpful... If you would keep uh, page 11 in front of you, that long reading from the Gospel of John, we're continuing our series in this portion of John's Gospel. Uh, and if you've been around Emmanuel for a little while, um, and, and some of you are kind of kind of roll your eyes, oh, here we go again, we've heard this a thousand times, but that's fine. Um, uh, one of the things we say here is that uh, Emmanuel Anglican Church exists, you know what I'm going to say, right, I hope? to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City. That's the little thing. And um, the, reason, the reason we say that a lot um, is that it explains why. It explains why we do stuff. In fact, uh, hopefully, it's our ambition that every single thing we do here as a church would be some way of, of doing that, of seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ, describing the beauty of Jesus Christ, reflecting the beauty of Jesus Christ in a way that serves uh, our city well. Now, I bring it up right now because the text that we're looking at, this story of Jesus and his betrayal, uh, is all about Jesus' beauty. Now, I, I say that, and, and of course, that's something I could say about every single passage of the Bible. Um, it's, it's our conviction that the, the main point of the Bible, the main point of the whole book, it's a big book, but the, whole, the main point, it, it's not um, simply how to be a better person. It's not uh, how to have a great life. Um, it's not uh, a set of stories to live by. Um, the Bible, from the beginning to end... Uh, Christians have always understood it to be a story designed to fundamentally show us Jesus. And the reason that that's so important is that the conviction of the Bible is that when you see the beauty of Jesus Christ clearly and, and so to speak, entrust yourself to Jesus' beauty, that's when all of the rest of life is animated with meaning. And therefore, just like the whole of the Bible is about uh, Jesus' beauty, this story that we're looking at is all about the beauty of Jesus Christ. However, there's something very strange about this reading. And the strange thing about this reading is its setting. It's the backdrop. Verse 30 says, And it was night. Now, in one sense, that's just obvious. It was nighttime. Fine. But in the context, the nighttime is pregnant with meaning. Because this is the night when Judas betrays Jesus and all that comes from that happens. Um, this is the night when Jesus gets betrayed, not by his overt enemies, but rather by his inner circle. This, put differently, this is the night... When the church, the first church, the proto-church, the beginning of the church, t 
turns against Jesus. Now let me pause and ask a question. How much do you trust the church? How much do you trust institutional Christianity? Just cook that for a minute. Um, let's imagine, let's imagine that there were portions of the church that betray Jesus. Let's imagine that there are portions of Christianity that uh, just deeply fail to represent Jesus well. Let's imagine that part of Christianity is just deeply untrustworthy. And I know that some of us don't have to imagine that because you've experienced it. But here's my question. What does that mean about Jesus? Or let me ask a different question that's similar. What does Jesus do when his church, his people, his disciples act unfaithfully? Now, here's why I ask this question. The story that we're looking at is just ground zero for what happens when the church turns against Jesus. And the remarkably surprising thing is that Jesus, in this moment and in this story, shows his beauty just as wonderfully, maybe more, than he does in just about any other moment. So I want to look at this, this passage, and I want to look at three things. We're going to look at the darkness. The darkness of the church's treason against Jesus. And then secondly, we're going to look at the light of Christ in the middle of that darkness. And then thirdly, we're going to look at how it is that Jesus calls us to shine his light as a church. Okay, first of all, we got to look at the darkness of the church's treason. Just review the scene here. Let me set it up if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks. Um, Jesus and his disciples are having dinner together, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a festival dinner. Uh, Jesus has just gotten up, walked around the table, and washed all of his disciples' feet, which was just unheard of in the culture and was almost embarrassingly kind. Everybody's kind of red-faced and awkward. Jesus is washing my feet. What do I do? Um, but then, after doing that, Jesus sits down, and then things get tense uh, and sober and serious. And right in the middle of dinner that is supposed to be a celebration, Jesus drops a bombshell. Look at verse 18. This is the bombshell. Jesus says, I'm not speaking about all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And then look at verse 21. Jesus just cuts to the chase and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Can you imagine that dinner, like that moment, that the bombshell that that was? These are Jesus' 12 closest confidants. These are the 12 disciples who have been with Jesus every single day of three years. No one knows Jesus better than these 12 close friends. And no one has seen Jesus up close like these 12 have. And yet, despite all that, Jesus looks at them at dinner. He looks them in the eyes and he says, Disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And then it gets stranger. Do, do you notice how Jesus quotes something in verse 18? Did you catch that? Look at it. He says, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. What, what's that all about? Well, he's quoting uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He's quoting Psalm 41. 
Psalm 41 was written by, by King David hundreds of years before Jesus. We don't know all the particulars of the context, but it's likely that King David wrote Psalm 41 in the context of his own betrayal. Uh, a guy called Ahithophel. Everybody say Ahithophel. <laughs> don't, you can write that down for your kids. It's fine. Um, Ahithophel was, was friends with David, confidant, advisor. Betrays David. And supports a coup. And here Jesus quotes that psalm. And Jesus says to his disciples. Guess what? Ahithophel's happening again here. But then there's more. Because if you go back to the Hebrew scriptures. If you go back to the Old Testament. Um, the people of God in the Old Testament. They weren't called the church then. They were called Israel. But um, Ancient Israel regularly, if you read the story, they regularly rebel, betray, turn treasonous against God. And there's this whole theme of betrayal that just runs right through the entire narrative. Um, Ahithophel betraying David is one example, but there's tons of other examples. In fact, this theme of, of betraying God, God's people betraying God, it, it's a little bit like, like a tsunami wave that runs right through the whole story of the Bible over the course of hundreds of years. I don't know anything about tsunamis, but I'm told that, and somebody is going to tell me that this is totally wrong, and that's fine, but just kind of go with it for right now. Um, I'm told that, that if you're out to sea in the, in the middle of the sea and a tsunami comes by, that, that it's not necessarily evident uh, its full destructive power, that... that it's a swell, and, and there you go. But a tsunami wave can travel hundreds of miles and eventually hits land. And when it hits land, its full destructive power is, so to speak, fulfilled. You see it. It crashes down. And you say, oh, my goodness, that's no normal wave. Now, that's what happens in the Old Testament. Because you read this big story, and time and time again, God is kind to Israel, his people. God is kind to uh, those whom he rescued. But then again and again, they turn on him. They just turn against him. And they, and they do it in different ways. Sometimes they stop believing that he's good. Sometimes they stop believing what he says is true. Sometimes they just jettison his ethical teachings. But in, in each instance, if you just look at the particular, it looks like a blip. It looks like an anomaly. But then when you back up and you look at the whole story, you realize that there is just this big giant wave running through the whole narrative and you've got then you realize what does this mean what does it mean and you realize it's going to crash down at some point this is the story where it crashes down Jesus knows the wave of betrayal runs right through the whole of scripture and now he says disciples the scripture must be fulfilled the tsunami of humanity's treason against God is now crashing down and disciples it is crashing down on me through one of you now pause here. Have you ever felt betrayed by the church? Have you ever been disgusted by the church and what the church has done? Look at how it impacted Jesus. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Now, troubled, troubled, that sounds mild. Oh, I'm mildly troubled. No, not, that's not what this is. This is a big deal. Jesus is fully human, 
And in a mysterious way, he's fully God. And in this moment, the full feeling of the weight of betrayal is pressing down on him. And his grief is not just for himself. I mean, he has reason to grieve for himself because Judas's betrayal will end up killing him. But he's not just grieving for himself. He's also grieving for his friend Judas because Judas's betrayal hurt Leah, hurts a lot of people, but it hurts him most deeply. It, it destroys him. It destroys him forever. And what I want to show you is just the depth of the darkness of this night. This is midnight for the people of God. This is Israel's worst moment. And it's the church's worst moment. Right? And it's not yet quite inception. Okay, Jim, why is it important? Well, there's a lot of reasons why it's important. But here's one. I sometimes hear people say, I cannot trust Jesus because I cannot trust his church. And I feel the force of that objection, don't you? However, in spite of that, let me point something out. It is true that the church has often betrayed Jesus, just like Israel did in the Old Testament. Israel betrayed God in the Old Testament. Judas betrayed Jesus. And the church throughout its history had betrayed Jesus many times. And yet, part of the thing that's so remarkable about this is that in the darkness of the church's betrayal, as dark as that is, it does not snuff out the light of Christ. The treason of Judas, the treason of the church today, it doesn't finally defeat Jesus. And that's why, in the midst of the darkness, we've got to look and see the light of Christ. What is this light that is capable of shining in the darkness and in the depth of the darkness of the church's worst betrayal against him? Because if it really does shine there, then it's worth trusting. All right, the darkness of the church's betrayal. But now look at the light of Christ that shines despite it. And you can see the light of Christ when you look at how Jesus treats Judas. So um, Jesus publicly at the table, go, go back to the imagery of the table, um, he tells everybody that somebody's going to betray him. And, and everybody goes, oh, wait, who's it going to be? That's crazy. What, what do we do? And they start looking at each other. And then finally, Peter tells John to ask Jesus. Anyways, John asks Jesus who it is. And Jesus does something very strange there. Because Jesus had, a, had an opportunity. He could have just unmasked J Judas in front of everybody. He could have said, there he is, get him. And, and they would have got him. Uh, he could have humiliated Judas. But instead of that, he almost does the opposite. What he does is he takes a piece of bread. John knows what he's doing, but nobody else quite does. He takes a piece of bread. He dips it in the oil in the middle of the table, and then he hands it to Judas. Now, slow down here, okay? Just slow down. Because two things are happening. On the one hand, Jesus is telling John privately. John is clearly right next to Jesus. Jesus is telling John, it's Judas. But he seems to say it quietly because nobody else at the table understands. It's clear from the rest of the reading. 
But on the other hand, Jesus is showing remarkable love to Judas, who is his enemy. Here's why I say that. In that culture, if a host, the, the person who was running the dinner, if a host singled out a piece of bread and singles out one of the guests and specifically gives a piece of bread to the guest, it was a way of showing respect and showing great honor. So Jesus has just washed everybody's feet, but then here in this moment, Jesus singles out Judas for particular honor. And it was as if Jesus was looking at Judas as he hands him the bread, and it's as if Jesus is saying, Judas, you know who I'm talking about. You, I know the treason in your heart, but Judas, I still love you. I even honor you. And right now, as I give you this bread, I give you what you do not deserve. I offer you the bread of friendship when you deserve the sword of judgment. Judas, won't you turn? Now, there's, you don't have to. Will you? Can you see the kindness of Jesus right at the end? Now, of course, the tragedy, the, the unimaginable tragedy is that Judas doesn't receive the bread of friendship. He takes the bread, but he prefers Satan to Jesus in that moment. And in that moment, he gave himself to hell for forever. The tragedy is unimaginable, and it's midnight for Judas. And it's midnight for the church's treason. However, Turn the camera angle now back upon Jesus. Because again, this is where the light of Christ is shining most brightly. You can see the light of Christ in at least two more ways. First of all, you can see the light of Christ because Jesus is in control this whole time. You know, usually when a leader is betrayed, it means that they're out of control. But not Jesus. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. In other words, Jesus is saying, the darkness is coming, disciples, and it was going to be darker than you can possibly imagine. But Jesus says, even when you find out that Judas betrays me, by extension, even when the church betrays me, says Jesus, do not imagine that I'm out of control. I am not out of control. I am still in control. I see it coming. And it will, it's as if Jesus says, I am going to take this betrayal as tragic as it is, and I'm going to weave it into my own plan so that it will not finally thwart my plan, but it will, in a remarkable way, contribute to it. The point is, Jesus is in control even when the church betrays him then and now. There's also a bit more. Look at verse 19. Look at it carefully. Do you see how he says, when this happens, you'll know that I am he. I am he. In the original, it's I am, which could just simply mean that I'm he. But in the context of the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John uses this word I am to echo the name of God in the Old Testament. Which is to say, Jesus is saying, when you see all this happen, you'll know that I am truly God. The God who was betrayed in the Old Testament. So he's saying, in the darkness, when Judas betrays me, and when all everything falls apart, and when the church betrays me, in that moment, remember, disciple, that I saw it coming, and let it persuade you that I am no hapless victim, 
says Jesus, that I am God himself, that I am the God of Israel. And just as Israel's treason in the Old Testament did not thwart God's plan, and just like Judas's treason in this moment does not ultimately thwart Jesus's plan, so also we can by extension say that the church's treason today does not ultimately thwart the plan of Christ. See, the light of Christ shines even in the darkness, and especially in the darkness. And why do I say especially in the darkness? Because of verse 31. This is the last way you see the light of Christ in this passage. Verse 31, Judas walks out the door, and Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. It's a remarkable moment. Judas walks out. Jesus knows he's going to go betray him. And yet Jesus says, this is the moment of my greatest glory. This is the moment when my beauty will be set on display more than at any other time. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. Judas's treason leads to Jesus's death. And as tragic as Jesus's death is from the vantage point of eternity, from our vantage point, it is more a triumph. I say that because Jesus' death, the the whole point, ultimately, of the Christian message is that Jesus' death purchased something. It purchased many things. But crucially, Jesus' death purchased the bread of friendship for Jesus' enemies. Jesus' death and resurrection allows him to offer to the whole world, to every single person who has no time for God, the bread of friendship, just like he offered to Judas. And this is when you realize the kind of God that Jesus is. Because here's Jesus. He's being betrayed, and yet nevertheless, he goes to the cross, and through his death and resurrection, he holds out the bread of friendship, reconciliation, healing, renewal, restoration, and he hands it, offers it specifically to people who really don't have any time for him and would happily betray him. Now, let's bring all this together for a few minutes, okay? Um, Friends, there are lots of reasons to mistrust the church, aren't there? I don't have to review the news, right? And it's not just the obvious ones. Don't imagine it's just the obvious ones. When you see uh, treason, reason to distrust the church out there, look in here. It's too easy to look out there. Look in here. We have good reason to mistrust ourselves. But here's what this text teaches. When the church is corrupt it does not mean that we should give up on Jesus. It means that we get to see why we need Jesus so radically and so deeply. Friends, every human institution is corrupt, isn't it? Every religious institution is corrupt. Can you think of an institution that's not? But Jesus is the God who defeated the church's corruption. Jesus is the God who himself was victimized. The first victim of the church's betrayal is God himself. And therefore, Jesus can stand up with all victims of church betrayal and treason, and he can say, I stand with them because I'm the first among them. 
But then he can also, at the very same time, hold out the bread of reconciliation to his enemies. And I don't know any other view of God that can do that. A God that's able to stand with victims and also at the very same time restore the guilty. Who else can do that? And if God can do that, and if Christ can do that, who else deserves our loyalty and our allegiance? Who else is safer than that? It's why I say Jesus' beauty shines even in the darkness of the church's unfaithfulness and in a remarkable way, especially in the darkness of the church's unfaithfulness. So trust in Christ, even if you can't trust the church. But then I can imagine, and this is where we're going to land, I can imagine somebody saying, uh, yeah, but it's, really? I mean, is it that? Is the church always the enemy? I can imagine somebody saying, is the church just pointless? No. And this is the last great surprise in the text. Look back at the text. This is the call for Emmanuel today. Do you see verse 20 right in the middle of the passage, right in the middle of the darkness, Jesus commissions the church with authority. Why would he do that then? Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. That is Jesus commissioning the church with his own authority. Right at the moment when all of his disciples are starting to fall apart, Jesus commissions the church. Jesus sends the church with his own authority. He says, I was sent by my father, and therefore I represent his authority. He, and then he looks at the disciples, and by extension to the church, and he says, you now go in my name, representing me and carrying my authority. And, and so Jesus, he's, he's sending the church, but of course he's not naive. He knows what's going on. And yet he still doesn't give up on the church. But look again carefully at verse 20, verse 20. Because the church is sent by Christ to represent Christ's authority. And that means the church carries Christ's authority on the condition that the church points faithfully to Christ. That is to say, the church is, does not exist for itself. It doesn't exist to protect itself. It doesn't exist to exalt itself. It doesn't exist to kind of sit here and tamper with Jesus' message so that other people will like us a little bit more. Rather, all of those things are different ways of being Judas. Instead, the task of the church is to faithfully point to the beauty of Christ day in and day out until we see him face to face. And that's our task, Emmanuel, faithfulness, a culture of faithfulness. We are to see the beauty of Jesus Christ and describe the beauty of Jesus Christ and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ. And though that is when we are faithfully carrying the light of Christ in the middle of the present darkness. And that's who we, need, we are meant to be, a culture of faithfulness. By ourselves, we'll get it wrong. Don't trust ourselves, please. Because it's not just, the call here is not just don't be Judas. The call today is realize that we have Judas hearts. And therefore, knowing that, take the offer of the bread of friendship that Jesus offers us. Take and receive 
Christ's reconciliation, restoration, renewal, and then spend the rest of your life and all of our life together as a church pointing faithfully, not to ourselves, but to Christ. He must increase, we must decrease. And as that increases, he increases, we decrease. As that happens, that will be the culture of faithfulness. And that is when we will fulfill our mission. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.